Hope you love the Lord tonight. I hope that's your testimony. He's been so good to us. There's a lot to love Him for. And I appreciate the good music and the good song. Thank you for loving your church and loving the, the Word enough to be here tonight. And I guess congratulations is in order. Uh, congratulations to uh, liberal Kansas and the United States of America for beating uh, Olney England in the uh, pancake race. So England ought to be used to losing to us by now, so good job, good job on uh, sticking it to them once again, and appreciate one of the church members giving me a, a shirt, flipping pancakes for years, and so I'll wear that proudly and think of you guys, and I uh, wish I, part of me wishes that I would have gone down and seen this, uh, the other part is grateful that I stayed warm and did not, um, so uh, anyway, uh, congratulations to you. And I will say this as well, I'm also proud of Liberal Kansas because I was told that a neighboring town has a cow chip throwing contest, and I'm glad that you have one better than that, all right, so very good. Uh, John 17, John 17, if you'll turn there, we began looking a little bit at what is commonly called the high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ. We could probably call it the Lord's Prayer, usually that's for referring to Luke 11, uh, the, really I like to call that the model prayer. But here we're able to listen in on Jesus praying. And I feel like, man, if you could hear his prayer request, it ought to make a difference in our lives. You know, growing up in church all my life, I have heard some pretty ridiculous prayer requests and prayer time, you know. A lot of times prayer requests are really not requests. Uh, maybe they're demands on the Lord. Or maybe they're not prayer requests, it's just a gossip session. It's an opportunity to tell everybody what's really going on. But here we listen to Jesus, the very Son of God, praying to His Father and close communion. And His desires for His people in general, His disciples, even Himself, ought to be very real to us even today. They ought to be our desires too. So I invite you to stand with me if you're physically able to do that. And I want to read to you just verses 20 to 23. Last night we looked at verses 16 through 19. And Jesus desired for his 11 disciples to be sanctified. And we looked at how that applies to us. But let's see as he transitions his prayer and looks at another request. He says, Neither pray I for these alone, in verse 20, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me, and the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. You notice several times in there in the reading, if you're careful, you notice he uses the word one several times, and he's praying that there would be a unity and a togetherness among the believers. And so let's take a look at that tonight. I want to preach to you a little bit this evening about united for a cause. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I do pray that you would fill me with thy spirit and that you would help me. Thank you for the good day that we have had, and I pray that you would just have a, uh, a presence here tonight that we would recognize. I pray for those that may be tired. I pray that you would give them an alertness and a strength to stay awake and to stay focused. I pray that you would give me an unction from on high, a touch to preach with effectiveness. 
And I pray that you would do a work in our hearts that you desire to do. May we yield to that, and it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. I appreciate that. A man named Jay Gordon Melton, he's a professor of religious studies at Baylor University. He, uh, not too long ago, just several years ago, he made a study and a list of denominations in the United States. Now before I read the uh, findings of his study, I knew immediately that there were going to be a lot of denominations in the United States. And by the way, if I could just take a time out and say this, if you don't think denomination matters, I would like to meet you in the lobby tonight and change all of my single dollar bills for your $20 bills. So denomination has some significance, is what I'm saying. But he kind of blew my mind away a little bit when he reported that there were 1,517 different recognized denominations in the United States of America. By the look at your faces, that surprised you as it did me. Some of them, to be honest with you, were quite ridiculous. How could that be a recognized denomination is what, something that I asked. But then my attention was turned toward the fact that he reported that there are 88 different Baptist denominations on his list. That's what I said, 88 different Baptist denominations according to J. Gordon Melton. Well, that just confirms something that you and I already know. Bible history and church history bear record to the sad fact that brothers and believers do not always get along. If we were to go back in the Bible, you're going to find that this started very early. In Genesis chapter 4, Cain got so angry at his brother Abel, and really it was kind of over some religious differences, wasn't it? And Cain took the life of his brother Abel. Uh, several chapters after that, you're going to have Jacob and Esau. You talk about two brothers that really wanted to compete with one another. These guys competed about everything all the time, Jacob and Esau. We could fast forward a little bit in Bible history and you're going to find that here we had a, not only brother against brother and, and sibling rivalry, but you're going to find David, son-in-law to Saul, and they were constantly at odds with one another. And then later in church history, you're going to find that Paul and Barnabas, remember those guys? They fell out in sharp contention over John Mark. And the, the argument was so intense that they split ways and parted with their ministries. And I guess I'm just simply trying to say to you that none of this is new. Spiritual unity is a rare commodity. So can I take a pause and say this just to Fellowship Baptist Church? When you find spiritual unity, as I sense exists in this place, it's such a rare commodity, it ought to be appreciated and protected uh, at all costs, really. But Jesus mentioned unity earlier in his prayer. In verse 11, he makes mention uh, of that fact. He says that he desires that there would be unity among the believers. And now it seems to become an entire point of uh, emphasis as he uses several verses to do that. Now again, I want to remind you how this prayer takes some flow to it. It's not haphazard thoughts and requests, but it, it really has a fairly specific outline. And it makes me wonder, was Jesus praying from a list? Now, I want to challenge you. I don't know if Jesus was praying from a list, but we can see there's an observable outline. But I want to challenge you in your prayer life to use a list. Because praying is a very difficult discipline, isn't it? I, think, I am told that the average Christian prays four minutes a day. I'm told that the average pastor 
prays seven minutes a day. Prayer is a difficult discipline, and a list sure does help me. Are you like me? I can sit, and I love college football, I can sit and watch a college football from start to finish and not think about anything that I have to do. Not a single thing. But when I start to pray, I, listen, I've never, I rarely ever think about cleaning my gutters. But that might enter my mind while I'm praying. Why is it that that happens to us? Uh, because prayer is a difficult discipline, isn't it? And so a list kind of helps me stay on target and stay on track. Oh, what was I thinking about? What was I praying about? What do I need to talk to the Lord about? And just maybe Jesus was praying off a list. And here's how his prayer flows. In verses 1 through 5, he prays for himself. And his prayer request is that he may be glorified. In verses 6 through 19, he prays specifically for those 11 disciples in front of him. And he prays that they would be protected and that they would be sanctified. And in verses 20 through 26, where we're entering here, now he's praying for all believers, and the central thought of his prayer is that they would be unified. Now think about this. We commonly refer to God as our Father. And so every parent in here, if you're a mother or a father, you have children, certainly you have desires for your children. I have held, I remember when my oldest daughter, who's now a senior in high school, it's very difficult for me to imagine, but holding her in my arms, it, I mean, you know, probably only seven and a half pounds of weight, but it felt like the weight of the world and responsibility. And, and, and I have often thought her mother and I have dreams and hopes and goals and aspirations for our children. And one of those seems to be, with five in our household, one of those seems to be that they get along. <laughs> Good luck with that. How many of you fought like cats and dogs with your brother and sister growing up? Absolutely you did. I mean, isn't that funny how we are sometimes? We'll fight all day long with one another, but somebody else better not mess with my brother, you know? Man, I I can see Jesus and his desire much like a parent. Man, uh, sometimes I feel that way. Can't you guys just get along? And here Jesus is praying for his believers. I want them to be unified I want them to get along. I want them to be together as one. So tonight I want to give you two desires that Jesus has for his followers. Number one, he desires that the church would be unified. We see that in verses 20 and 21. Now that begs a question though. What is unity and what's the point of it? Because I think there's a false understanding and concept of unity. What is unity? Is unity holding hands around a campfire singing kumbaya? I hope not. First of all, I don't even like that song. I mean, what is that, right? I've appreciated your music this week, but I'm really glad you didn't sing kumbaya, and I really hope tomorrow it doesn't surface. The other thing is, what's with holding hands? I'm not trying to be, uh, I guess, snarky tonight, but some Christians think they can't pray together without holding hands. And I always felt that's a little weird. I can't get any witnesses on that one. Man, the Amen Conference is coming up this weekend. I hope we have some time of prayer, but please, let's not hold hands. Can we do that? 
Uh, man, I remember one time I was preaching, and um, I, I used to be able to preach in some prisons a lot, and I, I enjoy preaching in prisons, but we had a prayer meeting with some prisoners, and this was a, at a medium level, some maximum level of uh, security prison, and I remember, man, I just met this guy, and he told me, I, I always learned, you just don't ask people what they're in for, but this guy told me he was in for life. Now, I just put two and two together. I ain't the brightest bulb, but I, I know this much. If you're in for life, that's something bad. And so he told me that without me asking. He said, yeah, I'm in for life. And he said, let's pray together. And he wanted to hold my hand. Here I'm in a circle of lifers. And I'm thinking, why am I holding hands with these guys? Is that what unity is? Is unity us all just making a, a prayer chain, holding hands, singing kumbaya, my Lord? Kumbaya? Is that what it is? No, no, that's not unity. And let's be clear also. Watering down doctrine to its least common theological denominator is not what Jesus had in mind. There's a word for that, and it's not unity. The word is ecumenicalism. That's a fancy word that just means that you're promoting or trending toward a worldwide unity or a Christian cooperation. And while I think that people that believe that, their goal is extremely noble, the method of that is not biblical. You say, what do you mean? Jesus is praying here for unity among believers. What do you mean? Well, this is what I mean. The Bible never teaches peace at any price. It doesn't teach that. James 3.17 says this, but, let the wisdom, uh, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable. So there's an order there. Somebody said this, a commentator said this. I think it's a good quote. He said, truth without love is brutality. But love without truth is hypocrisy. Now you think about that. Think about churches that you may have experienced. There are some churches that I think have a great deal of truth, but they have a low level of love. And when you find a church like that, I mean, man, they are a watchdog on the P's and Q's of theology. I mean, if a preacher were to come into their congregation, he were to misspeak, or he would say something that was not theologically precise, oh, they would jump on him, and, and they would correct him, and oh, no, we don't tolerate false doctrine around here. But a lot of times, if they're low on their level of love, they may have strong doctrine and have a great deal of truth, but they can find themselves being very, very cold and defensive. You ever been in a congregation like that? The Lord has allowed me to travel and preach in different places, and the Lord has allowed me to minister in different places. And I've been in a lot of different congregations, and I've learned this, that the Bible likens a church to a body, and everybody has a different personality, and churches have different personalities. A lot of it hinges on the personality of the pastor and the leadership and the influences there. A lot of it hinges on the culture and the area of the country. But I have been in some churches that are very cold and very defensive. And I'll be quite honest with you, I wouldn't want to be a part of that kind of church. Where everybody's persnickety and defensive and re ready to argue. And Man, I, I just wouldn't want that. But that happens. But then the flip side reaction to that is to have a church that's high on the level of love, but low on the level of truth. And when you have that, I mean, man, it's warm and everybody loves each other. And there's a lot of slapping on the back and hugging and, 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 and uh, carrying on and all of that. And that's good. But what happens to that kind of faith is it just turns into something that's just sentimentality. 
And can I tell you tonight, there is more to our faith than just warm and fuzzy feeling good? Listen, I like the warm and fuzzy sometimes. I do. I mean, there's nothing wrong with feeling good. I, I hope after a week of revival, you first of all, you'll feel tired because you've been in church after a while. But, but I hope that you feel like you love the Lord. I hope that you feel that you're close to the Lord. And I, I hope that maybe your heart is tender and there, there's a feeling of an excitement or enthusiasm and all of that. But, but I don't want a, a faith that is so weak and so marshmallow that we don't have some meat to what we believe and it's just a bunch of sentimentality, fuzzy, feel good all of the time. So that being said, how, how, do, we, how do we become one? Well, I'm going to give you some bad news. Unfortunately, full unity will not be achieved until after Jesus comes again. This is in the Bible. Here's what Ephesians 4, 11 through 13 says. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And most of the time the emphasis is just placed on that, and it's a good emphasis. Let's not miss that final phrase. He says this, till we all come in the unity of faith. He says, until the Lord comes again and brings us all into this unity of faith, there are apostles and there there are preachers and teachers and different people that are perfecting the work of the ministry and perfecting the saints. And so therefore, here is the message for you tonight in this thought of unity. Until Jesus comes again, the unity that we need to be striving for is the unity within our own local assembly. Listen, I cannot control what the church down the street does. I personally, Pastor Oakwood, and I'm a Baptist church, I'm personally a member of Oakwood Baptist Church in Anderson, South Carolina. And listen, in our town, there are a lot of churches. And I can't control what everybody else is doing, and I can't get along with what, and go along with what everybody else is doing. I I don't even need to bother myself trying to do that. I need to work on the unity within our own body. Fellowship Baptist Church should not be worrying about what some other ministry does. We don't need to be getting on the internet and saying, well, this ministry does it. Hey, know what you believe and know who you are, but what you need to be working at is I'm preaching to this church congregation tonight. We can't control worldwide religion, but what can be controlled is what takes place within this body of believers called Fellowship Baptist Church. So what is, again, I keep referring to a church as a body. Have you ever had your body, your physical body, not get along with itself? You ever said that? I've said this before. My stomach is just not agreeing with me. We've all had our our body. I I played basketball with these guys last night. Man, good grief. Some of you guys are in your low 20s and stuff. Man, man, there was a high school kid. He went up. I just fouled him, man. That's what you do when you're old, you know? I mean... Uh, but, but I think it was Thad asked me, he said, how you feeling? He must have noticed how old I am. He said, you, you have to be stiff and tired. I feel actually pretty good, but I, I, di- I do have to admit, I went home and my foot was cramping and my, my hips were tight and I got a finger that I dislocated recently and that was sore and that's just, my body wasn't necessarily agreeing with me. You got to keep that thing together. We know what it's like when our body is not all in, in unison. And we also know what it feels like when your body was in unison. I mean, you know, making jokes about getting old, but that's the problem about getting old is your, your brain still feels like you're young. 
And your body says, whoa, bub, you know. But the body has to stay together. So, so biblically speaking, what does that look like? Uh, well, first of all, I'll put this, it's, it's being of the same mind. 1 Peter 3, 8 says this, finally be ye all of one mind. Now that doesn't mean that we all have the same likes and dislikes. Listen, I pastor a Baptist church, man, and it's a good Baptist church, which means the people, they, uh, they, they, the people that get there early all sit in the back. You can tell you're in a good Baptist church if the ones that get there early sit in the back. And then, and then the ones that have to sit up front, they get to come in 15 minutes late. Now, that's a good Baptist church. Uh, but I, I've noticed in our church, man, you can't, I've said this for years, you can't get 100 Baptists to agree on what kind of pizza to order. So when I talk about being of the same kind of mind, I'm not talking about we all have the same likes and dislikes. Now, I understand that in a church there are going to be some that, well, I like that song and I didn't like that song and I like that sermon and I didn't care for that one and I like the color of this carpet and I don't much care for that and, man, wasn't that a great theme? I thought last year's was better. You know, I mean, you're not always going to have the same likes and dislikes. What it does mean is it means this, that we are controlled by the Word of God that results in the same attitude. Understand this tonight. Truth is the bond that holds us all together. I had the privilege of pastoring the First Baptist Church of Long Beach, California. In that particular church, we had nationalities of all different kinds, man. I mean, we had people from Africa, we had people from India, we had people from Korea and Cambodia and the Philippines and all over Latin and South America. I mean, you name it, it seems like we had it. And most of our people, most of our people uh, did not look the same and most of our people did not speak the same language as their first language. So what brought us together? Because we saw things differently and tasted things differently. And so what brought us together? One word, truth. It was the bond that brought us together. I'll illustrate it like this. One time I was at Walmart, and you see some pretty crazy things at Walmart, don't you? I saw a fellow coming out of Walmart that just immediately made me laugh. Because he was wearing bibbed overalls. Now you're saying, wait a second, what's wrong with bibbed overalls? Nothing, that's not what made me laugh. He was wearing a pair of bibbed overalls, and he had his bibs on, and they were fashion. And, and I personally don't wear bibbed overalls, but I have worn them before, and I can understand why people wear them. They are pretty comfortable. I mean, they, they, they kind of are. And this old boy, he was wearing his bibbed overalls. But I've, I've, I don't know, maybe I'm just kind of old-fashioned in this way. I, I just feel like I don't mind a guy wearing suspenders or wearing a belt or wearing bibbed overalls. But I feel like if you wear a belt, you don't need suspenders. If you wear suspenders, you don't need a belt. If you wear bibbed overalls, you don't need a belt or suspenders. And I happened to look over, this fellow's wearing bibbed overalls, and he had a belt on. Now, it is kind of suspicious because bibbed overalls, a lot of them do have belt loops. That's kind of weird. But he had belt on with his, with his uh, bibbed overalls. But then it caught my attention, he also had suspenders over his bibs attached to his belt. Now, you talk about an OCD person, man. I mean, that guy must have had a terrible phobia. And I don't know what the right clinical word is for the phobia of your pants falling down. But he must have been terrified about his pants falling down in public. My other thought was, man, what kind of psychiatric problems this guy got? But the second thought I had is, what if that guy's got an emergency and got to get to the bathroom? He's got to do, undo all kinds of things to get, get there, you know? 
What I like about that, that, that whole vision in my mind of this guy at Walmart and his bibbed overalls and his belt and his suspenders is really that's what the truth is for us as a church. It holds us all together, and the Word of God and its principles and its teachings and its direction is what holds this place together. Listen, we can squabble all day about the color schemes and the programs and who's in charge of this and when do you take the offering and what songs are sang and how do we sing them in what style. You can argue about that till the cows come home, but I'm telling you, for this body of believers, we ought to be of one mind in the sense that the Bible guides our thoughts that helps shape our attitude. Number two. It's maintaining the same love. 1 Peter 3, 8 says this, having compassion one of another. Love is brethren. Because of our love for the truth, we have love for one another. Now again, let's be fair. This doesn't mean that we have the same emotional attachment to one another, to every person. That's impossible. Listen, I wish my wife could be with me this week. Out of all the nearly 8 billion people on this planet, I love her more than anybody else. And that's, that's normal, that's natural, that's right, isn't it? So I can't expect to love somebody else with the same emotional attachment that, that, that I love her. Listen, I love the children of Oakwood Baptist Church, I really do. But I don't love them like I love Molly, Matthew, Macy, Mary, and Mark. I, I, I can't have the same emotional attachment. So the Bible doesn't expect that of us, we understand that. But understand this, though. Our church ought to be a place where because of the truth, we are not selfish. Okay. We, we are not hateful. How about this? We're not envious and competitive. Listen, I have, again, I've been in church all my life. You want to see competitive people? Spend some time in a Baptist nursery. Oh, man, my, my, kid, my kid's already got teeth. Wow, I didn't know it was a race. And they usually get those. In fact, I'm told some children come out of the womb with them. Well, my kid was walking. My kid's potty trained. My, my kid can say their ABCs. Well, I'm glad your kid set them before mine, but my kid can beat your kid up. No, I'm just no, no, you see, really, I mean, isn't that true, though? We get it so competitive about people, and, and they got to sing the special, and, and, and they are always asking them to sing the solo, and they didn't ask me to teach a class. In fact, when they asked me to teach a class, they put me in first grade boys. Don't they know I'm qualified to teach adults? It is not a competition. We are working together. Do you know my, I'm right-handed. My left hand doesn't say, why does he get to always hold the pencil? He doesn't. In fact, usually these guys are trying to work together. You ever had an itch right in the middle of your back and you couldn't get it? And the right hand's going, oh, come on, come on, come on. And the left hand goes, let me help you here. And the left hand's like, man, dude, I can't get it either. And so, you know what I mean? We're all working together. That, that's what a church is supposed to do. So that means uh, we don't have a competition between the men and the women in the church. We don't have a competition between the young and the old. And that happens in churches, doesn't it? 
Man, I've seen too often churches have this. They create an entirely different subculture for their youth department. I don't know what you do here. What you do here is your business, I suppose. But at our church, junior church and teen church and regular church, however you want to label those things, we try to have it all the same. We're not going to have different styles over here in this building and this group wants it this way. In fact, we are one church working together. We don't have competition between the rich and the poor. We don't, we don't have competition in our church. Here's one that I see a lot between new members and old members. Well, that's my pew, and I've been sitting there forever. Well, then find a new seat. I literally have seen this happen in a church before. I have seen some visitor come and sit in a pew, and I've seen a, a member come up and say, uh, excuse me, you're new here, aren't you? Yes, sir, I am. Well, you're in my seat. The guy says, well, I'm sorry, I didn't know that. He goes, well, okay, move. (laughs) What in the world? And I know that that sentiment happens sometimes in churches that you have the old members that start resenting new members because maybe some of their attention is taken away or maybe these people are kind of pushing in on, hey, listen to church. Hey, let, let God get the body as big as he wants to get it. And there's not a competition. It's, hey, hey, come on in. The, the water's fine. Just everybody come in and there's a place for everybody. We need to maintain the same love. That's what unity looks like in this body. Number three, we have the same goal. Philippians 1.27 says that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Listen, this church, and I know you have a heart for it already, but I, what concerns me about a church that has a heart for the gospel like yours does is if you don't constantly stoke the flames of it, you'll lose it. So I've been trying to stoke them a little bit this week. But the, the heartbeat and the desire of this church ought to be I want to see people get saved, get baptized, and I want to see them grow. We ought to all be working towards that. One goal in our mind. But I've found that in our culture, there's an epidemic of individualism today. Constantly hearing things like this, well, express yourself. Just be yourself. And really... I don't know that it has much place in God's church. We're actually taught to die to self. Let me just give you this statement and I'll move on to the next point. If we would work as hard at maintaining unity as we sometimes do at attacking it, we would be a happier and holier people. Let me move on to the second thought. Two requests Jesus has. He says, I want my people to be unified. Number two, He wants people to be unified that the world might be persuaded. Look at what he says there. He says in verse 21, he says, uh, that, that they may also be one in us, the latter half, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. He says it again at the end of verse 23, that the world may know that thou hast sent me and has loved them as thou hast loved me. I'm not going to tell you something that you don't already know. We live in a very divided world, don't we? And it seems like it's becoming more and more so all the time. I don't know, a couple of weeks ago, about a month ago, um, I I watched a little bit of the State of the Union address. I know your pastor likes to watch Fox News. I'm sorry, I can't handle it. It it does two things to me. It, It makes me really depressed, and that's not good for me, or it makes me really mad. 
and neither one of those things are good for me. So I, I have to take it in very, very low doses. And I turned on the State of the Union. I watched it for less than five minutes. Here's our president. I think we need to respect our president, whether we agree with everything there or not. But it was kind of funny to me, because here I am watching him talk about how he's the greatest in the history of all humanity. And behind him was Nancy Pelosi, rolling her eyes and biting her lips and looking like she wanted to shoot herself in the head. He would say something and part of the crowd would stand up and cheer while the other would fold their arms and humph. Then I, I, I didn't know until the next morning when I read the paper, I wondered what the, what the women in the white were. I thought it was the Continental Congress Choir or something. I mean, when are they going to sing? But I come to find out it was a group of women suffragettes is what it was. You know, they are rolling their eyes and stamping their feet and carrying on. Just illustrating to us that we live in a very divided world. And it's getting worse all the time. And so since we live in a divided world, the world watches the church. And the world, I think, thinks to themselves, we've got enough problems of our own. Why should I get involved in a church and have more problems? It's actually kind of a logical question. Man, there's fighting and division in my office. Why would I want to experience that at my church? There's fighting and division over who gets to play first base on my kid's little league team. Why would I want to go in the church and argue about who gets to sing the solo? There's fighting and fussing in our political scheme. So why would I want to go and fight and fuss over religion? And so they feel this way. They say, what's the point? And so the church needs to bear witness to the spiritual unity that we do have in Christ. Because understand this tonight, people of Fellowship Baptist Church. The lost world cannot see God, but they can see Christians. They cannot see God, but they can see local churches. And you've got to remember tonight that witnessing to the world, witnessing to the lost, has two sides to the same coin. One of those sides is what we would call verbal. We need to tell them about Jesus. The other side is the visible. They need to see Jesus Christ in us. I'm not a huge fan of church signs. I think you have a really nice sign out there that's digital and graphics. That's great, but you remember the old slide the words on signs? Those get on my nerves. And you can make the same mistake with a fancy pants sign like what you've got. We've got a lady in our church that puts things on our sign. We have an electronic sign like yours, not as fancy as yours. Kind of got some sign envy going on here for a minute. But uh, I have instructed her, do not put anything stupid on our sign. For example, have you ever seen a church sign that said this? Walmart is not the only saving place. Boo! If that ever shows up on my sign, somebody's getting hurt. I saw one time it said, 
I saw a church sign that said, we're not Dairy Queen, but we have great Sundays. Boo! Bad sign! No! I saw one that I think I understand what they're saying, but I say boo to this too. One church sign I saw said, preach the gospel. Use words if you must. You must! I understand what they're trying to say. They're trying to say, live like a Christian so that others might see Christ in you, but you cannot preach the gospel without opening your mouth. So I don't know what to say. Say something. Do you know that you're saved? Then you'll do all right and let the Holy... Man, there have been times I've articulated and I thought wonderfully. I illustrated it and all the words were just flowing and the person, I said, do you want to get saved? No. There are other times I stumbled and bumbled and tripped and, oh, I should have said this. And I said, do you want to get saved? And they said, absolutely. And tears rolled down their face and they trusted Christ. Do not minimize the Holy Spirit working through you, my friend, is what I'm trying to say. But I get back on track here. When the gospel truth is proclaimed from the pulpit, by the strength of the relationships in the pews, two things are going to happen. Either the gospel is going to be confirmed and strengthened. Your pastor was encouraging you the other day to say amen in church. It's a good thing. It affirms truth. That's what it does. But you know what affirms truth far more? And I'm, I'm all for saying amen. Amen's like saying sick them to a bulldog when it comes to preachers. But what will affirm truth more than anything is by the way this congregation flows and fits together. Even when there are disagreements, by the way they forgive one another, by the way they communicate and work it out, by the way they, they show grace and patience with one another. But the flip side is, is when a church congregation is fussing and fighting, when truth is proclaimed from this pulpit, Listen, truth is truth, and nothing you can do can ever change that. Truth crushed to earth, the Bible says, will rise again. But, but I want you to know tonight that when we are fussing and fighting and living backward, when truth is proclaim, pro, proclaimed from a pulpit, it's contradicted and weakened. So, so I'm going to make a pretty heavy statement, and I'm almost done. But the biggest obstacle to effective evangelism is not outdated methods and we we could sit here and have discussions all day long about how churches ought to do ministry within the context of their congregation but the problem is not outdated methods and you can agree with that or you can disagree with that but i'm just telling you you go back to the bible some things will never change i don't care who you who you are and what you say preaching god chose the foolishness of preaching to save them that are believed. That will never change. And I don't care how cute you get. I don't care if you stand behind a big wooden pulpit or you sit on a, a bench at a coffee table in blue jeans. God chose preaching and that will never change. So don't talk to me about outdated methods. And one-on-one -on -one talking to somebody, whether you knock on their door, ring their doorbell, or sit in a coffee shop with your pinky extended, sipping lattes, it never changes. Confronting people personally with the gospel. Don't talk to me about outdated methods. That's not the biggest hindrance to evangelism being spread. Inadequate presentations, I already told you, sometimes you can be smooth as, as, as can be. It's not about inadequate presentations, and it's certainly not about limited resources. 
You look in the first century church, those people had nothing. They didn't have a building like this. They didn't have buses and vans. They didn't have climate control. They, they didn't have any of that stuff. And I like what Bill Bright, I don't agree with everything Bill Bright and Campus Crusade said, but I remember one time he said this. Never have, uh, in, the, in the New Testament they did so much with so little, and never has a group done so little with so much as we do today. And there's some truth to that. The problem is not our limited resources. So we can't sit around and say, well, we don't have this and we don't have that. And I'll tell you, if we had a fancy youth building and a big uh, kid's city building and whatever, listen, that that's not the issue. So here's my statement, and I'll wrap this up. I think the biggest obstacle to the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ are things like gossip, negative criticism, jealousy, backbiting, unforgiveness. And you listen to me, I preach enough revivals in enough local churches that bitterness and resentment and unforgiveness is a plague among God's people in local churches. I have yet to my Christian days seen people at altars hugging each other and crying and embracing and saying, forgive me, I've held you a grudge and I've resented you and I've harbored bitterness in my heart and it's time for me to get over. That's what's stopping the spread of evangelism in our world. Ingratitude. Griping and complaining about what we have and not appreciating what we do have. Greed and selfishness and all the like. Those intangible attitudes and oftentimes those acceptable sins among Christians. That is what's stopping the spread and the influence of the gospel in our communities. And Jesus said here, I am praying that my people would be unified so that the world might see me. Let me read you a little uh, short story I found. I hesitate sometimes in preaching to read things because sometimes people will check out on you, but I'll try to re read it dramatically enough that you don't leave me. I thought this, it's a little on the cheesy side, but it illustrates a great point, and I think it's well done. Someone has imagined the carpenter's tools were holding a conference. Brother Hammer presided. Several suggested he leave the meeting because he is too noisy. Replied the hammer, if I have to leave this shop, Brother Screw must also go. You have to turn him round and round again and again to get him to accomplish anything. Brother Screw then spoke up, well if you want, I'll leave. But Brother Plain must leave too. All of his work is on the surface, his efforts have no depth. To this, Brother Plain responded, Brother Rule will also have to withdraw, for he is always measuring folks as though he were the only one who is right. Brother Rule then complained against Brother Sandpaper. You ought to leave too, because you're so rough and always rubbing people the wrong way. In the midst of all of this discussion, in walked the carpenter of Nazareth. He had arrived early to start his day's work Putting on his apron, he went to the bench to make a pulpit from, the wood, from wood from which to proclaim the gospel. He employed the hammer, the screw, the plane, the ruler, sandpaper, and all of the other tools. After the day's work, when the pulpit was finished, Brother Saul arose and remarked, Brethren, I observe that all of us are workers together with the Lord. 
That is a picture and an image and an essay of what a local body of believers ought to be. So let me ask you some questions. Is this church unified? If not, what steps are you taking to help unify it? If your testimony tonight, and I believe this to be your testimony, all oh, preacher, we're in a good place right now. We are unified. Okay, well, I have an important question. What are you doing to keep it that way? Here's a good question. What is your testimony to the world? Are you persuading other people that God's grace is amazing? I believe in a lot of ways you are. But again, don't take things for granted. You never know what you've got until it's gone. And some of the best medicine is preventative medicine. So what can we do tonight? We can come fill an altar and say, Oh God, your desire for Fellowship Baptist Church, clearly your will is that we be unified so that others might see you in your grace. You might pray that unity be preserved in this place. Pray for unity amongst your staff and unity amongst the leadership in this church and unity amongst the people and say, where do I fit in and help me be a contributor to that? Why? So that we can say we've got a great place and everybody feels good about one another? No. So that the world and the community in which you live in can see the greatness that we sang about. How great is our God? That he could take a bunch of different people from different groups and different backgrounds and different preferences and different tastes and bring them in here and give them one mind and one love and one goal. That shows the greatness of our great God. Heavenly Father, I love you and I love